be with you. Happy Palm Sunday. Uh, this does mark the beginning of this Holy Week, this Passion Week, where we remember all that Jesus did to make all things new, to make us new, to make uh, this whole world around us new. And um, I feel like that's important every year, right? There's something special about Holy Week and Passion Week and Easter Sunday every year, but especially this year, be reminded that there's a greater reality than what we know and what we experience on a day-to-day basis is a really important thing. And I hope that you're encouraged this week, this year, and uh, remember that God's at work doing things that sometimes we can't see. And there's so much more happening than meets the eye. And this, this moment that we're going to look at today, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, really encapsulates that. You know, I think I've had the chance to, most of you, most of you have met my family, and you that if there's one thing that's kind of true of me, of my identity, of Ms. Trent, wife Amy that was leading worship, one thing that's true of me, it's that I'm a girl dad. Like, hashtag girl dad. I should, I should wear the t-shirt everywhere I go. I have three daughters, and uh, it feels like every moment of my life is kind of, I'm learning something new about what it means to be a girl dad. There are experiences that come my way that uh, I just, when I was a young man, um, projecting what my life would be like. It did not include many of these moments. Let's just say that. Um, not, not the least of these is, is, is our pet situation. So we now, um, as a part of our family, have two bunnies, two Holland Lops bunnies. They're the, the little tiny bunnies with the really long ears and uh, two female bunnies, really. So like now I'm responsible for um, not just the four women in my life, but the two female bunnies too. So again, girl dad, it's appropriate. And, uh, and these bunnies are, they're really fun. I don't know if you've ever had a rabbit as a pet. It's, it's appropriate this time of year. So if you don't have one, go get one. Um, but they're, they're very fun. Uh, they're, they're surprisingly warm toward people. They really like like affection and connecting with people. But um, I guess I would, the way I would describe our two bunnies is stubborn. Um, we, we have to like, we keep them in the, in the, in the little um, yard we have in the back of our house, but we have to bring them inside every so often to get exercise. And there's our room is set up. We have these two couches that kind of come together and it makes this little square space in the middle. And we have a table there, but the bunnies will stop at nothing to get to that little square space where we can't access them and prevent them from doing anything. I mean, we try everything we can think of to keep them from getting to this space. We have like pillows that block the entries. Um, but if we do that, they just, they just go under the couch and they make their way to that spot. And I'm not going to tell you what they do in the spot, but they're animals. So just think about what they might do in the spot. So they're just always trying to get there. It doesn't matter what we try to do to stop them. It's like they have a track mind. They're, they're going to get there at all costs. And, you know, it makes me think about um, the way that Jesus was so focused on what he needed to do during this Passion Week moment. You know, Jesus, if you, if you think about it, it basically is one long journey to the cross. Moment after moment, step after step, building to this uh, incredible moment of sacrifice when he would give everything for the sake of, for our sake, when he would sacrifice everything to transform the world as we know it. And, and every moment is building to that. And that's, that really begins to be in this week that we call the Passion Week. And it starts with Palm Sunday when he makes his entry into 
Jerusalem. Because once he enters in to Jerusalem, there's no going back, right? Like he starts what becomes that, that, that journey right up to the foot of the cross. And it starts at this moment when he enters into Jerusalem. Now, I don't know about you, but growing up, I think I always thought of Palm Sunday as like an exciting you know, with the, with the palm trees and the, and the palm fronds. And as a kid, there's always fun stuff you get to do on Palm Sunday. So I always thought of it in such a celebratory way. And there's no doubt that, that it is a moment of celebration. I mean, it is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords entering into his city, the city of God, right? It's, it's him coming into this, this place that really represents God's presence in the world. And so it is a moment of celebration. But I think, you know, if an if a, if a artist— was going to capture this moment when Jesus enters into Jerusalem. It would be a painting of, uh, of a moment of celebration, but all throughout the painting would be tinges of sadness. It's, it's a moment that is a celebration and yet is also a, a moment of what could have been. It's a bittersweet moment. It's, it's a moment of celebration that is, you know, uh, covered with this sense of longing about what it is that God wanted to do and what it is that Jesus could have done. And so I want us to look at it through those kinds of eyes today. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke together, um, start in chapter 19, starting with verse 28. And we're going to um, read through this, this moment of celebration and sadness together. Isn't it working? Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. So... I heard that this is a trial run today for, for next Sunday, so I, we're working out the kinks right now, I guess is what's happening, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm, I'm happy to be a part of the trial run. Thank you for including me in this. Uh, so, so we're going to be in Luke uh, chapter 19, starting at verse 28, and I think it's going to be on your screen. So here's what it says. After Jesus had said this, meaning he was um, explaining something to his disciples in a parable, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying tying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. Now this is an incredible moment in scripture because Jesus in coming into Jerusalem in this way is fulfilling some prophecies from the Old Testament that have been in existence for hundreds of years. He's, he's coming into the city exactly the way these Old Testament scriptures describe the Messiah's entry into Jerusalem. So it's this, this moment of, you know, hundreds of years of prophecy coming to fruition. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read these kinds of moments in Scripture, it's kind of one of those moments where my brain goes, you know, like I, I, it gets me asking all these questions like, okay, did Jesus know that he was going to come into Jerusalem this way before he read those Old Testament scriptures? Or did those like inspire him to know that he should come in in this way? You know, it's, it's kind of like one of those, the way I think of these kind of moments in my life is, I, I don't know, I'm, you guys know I'm kind of into movies. I don't know if any of you have ever seen Back to the Future, but it's like a space-time continuum 
kind of moment. Do you, do you guys know what I'm talking about? Do you remember the Back to the Future series? Basically, in Back to the Future, I'm, I'm, I'm going to sum up the whole movie for you in a nutshell. This is basically what you learn from Back to the Future. Basically, it's very dangerous to travel in time. Don't do it. It's basically, the, that's the gist of the movie. Because you've got to be really careful. If you go back in time, anything that you do could mess up what's happening in the future. Like it could, you could make yourself start to disappear, your future self, you know. Or your kids can end up way messed up from how they were supposed to be. Or, you know, you could end up living in a different home. Like basically that's the gist. And, and this, this moment, it, it gets my brain kind of going. I, I think maybe that's not what's really critical to understand. I think what we're really supposed to understand in this moment is how awesome Jesus is. That's what's on display here. Like Jesus is uh, an incredible man. Beyond that, Jesus is God, right? And this moment is supposed to illustrate to us just how in tune Jesus is with things that we have no insight on. Basically, what we, what we could say about this moment is Jesus knows exactly where he is headed and what he is doing. Right? He's got it all mapped out. He knows there's going to be the cult of a donkey waiting in a very specific spot. He knows if he sends his disciples ahead that the people who own the cult will willingly give it and it will be his means of entry into Jerusalem and it will fulfill this incredible prophecy from the Old Testament that really indicates exactly who it is that's coming into Jerusalem at this moment. This should illustrate to us who it is we're dealing with. Right? And it was intended to do so for the people in the moment. And one of the tragedies at work is they don't seem to recognize exactly who it is that's in their midst. But I've always loved this about Jesus. It's fascinated me about Jesus that every step of this journey is something that he is purposefully taking. Nothing is a surprise to him. You know, there's this, this movement that's happened in the last 50 years at least, um, where historians have kind of tried to co-op the moments of scripture for themselves. You know, there's this, I don't know if you've heard of this movement called the historical Jesus, you know, and it's, it's a, a, a friend of mine recently was sharing me with a book with me that she wanted to use to try to minister to her son who doesn't know anything about Jesus. And the title of the book was something along the lines of, when did this idea that Jesus was God develop? Do you hear kind of the hidden meaning in that title? Like, you'd think if you're trying to introduce, uh, teach someone the gospel, the idea about talking about Jesus being God is an important part of that, right? But this person was kind of subtly indicating that Jesus wasn't really God. It was just this idea that developed over time. And that's kind of the principle of the historical Jesus. Like, we got to find out who Jesus the man really was and strip away all this nonsense about him being this heavenly being who was in tune with, you know, prophecies from hundreds of years before. And what I would say about that is that has no place in who we are as Christians and believers, right? Because the essence of who we are is that this man, Jesus, who was coming into Jerusalem on this day on the back of this colt of a donkey is the Messiah. And he is both God and man. And he knows exactly what it is that he's doing. It wasn't that the Jewish leaders or the Roman leaders, you know, uh, grabbed hold of Jesus and killed him against his will. No, no, no. He purposefully took every step that led him to Jerusalem, and every step once he entered into Jerusalem was designed to lead toward that moment when he could surrender his life on the cross. 
Now, the fact that Jesus knows exactly where he's going and what he's doing doesn't make the moment any less sorrowful, does it? It still is a moment of sadness and tragedy because this is God in the flesh entering into Jerusalem and so few people are aware of it. Let's continue in, in Luke chapter, in verse 35 and you can see what I'm talking about as, as Jesus enters into Jerusalem. They brought the colt to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the ground. And when he came near the place where the crowd goes down, where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. So there's a, there's a little bit of a dichotomy there, isn't there? There's, the, there's those that are celebrating Jesus coming into the city and they are shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord and peace in heaven and glory in the highest and Hosanna and they're you know, laying branches on the ground and their cloaks on the ground. But then there are the leaders of God's people, the people that, you know, by all accounts, should have the most understanding of what's going on, and they seem to understand it the least, and they're upset with Jesus that his disciples are celebrating in this way, and they tell him to silence them. And Jesus' response is, well, if they don't cry out, the very rocks and stones will cry out in this moment. This is going to be a moment of celebration, whether you like it or not. You know, I've, I don't know what your life experience has been like, but one of the lessons I feel that's been like the most important to my growth um, as a person and um, as, a, as, a, as a, an adult, one of the biggest parts of my adulting, you know, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that word, but it's basically all the challenges that we have to face as we get older. Because um, wouldn't it be nice if we could just be kids forever in a lot of ways, right? Um, you can't, nobody can convince you of that when you're a kid. All you can wait for is to get older. And then the older you get, you go, oh man, I wish I could go back in time, you know? That's the tension. But one of the things I've had to learn um, through this journey of adulting is a little phrase I like to call expectation management. Do you know what I'm talking about? Expectation management. Because the reality of life is very rarely do things measure up to my expectations. Have you experienced this? Like you have a sense of what something's going to be like and it just falls far short, you know? Now, on, on rare occasions, it will exceed your expectations and I've, I've learned those are incredible moments. You know, when, when you go in expecting like, like a great meal at a restaurant and it exceeds your expectations, you need to go back to that place over and over again, right? Like that's, that's what that means. And, um, I remember when this first started to sink in for me, you know, as a kid, I was an athlete and I played a lot of sports and I, I played baseball. And, and when I was 11, I got on this team and um, we won the championship you know, of, our, of our little league. And, you know, I guess if you're a, a little league baseball player, that's probably everybody's dream is to, to win the championship. And um, here's what I remember about it. Like we, we played this amazing game. You know, when you're in little league, you only play six innings usually. And we played this nine inning game. It went extra innings 
and the score was, I think the other teams tied the score in the bottom of the sixth. So it, it was two to two. And then we finally scored in the top of the ninth. And, you know, I got to be like the closer of this game. So I got to come in and strike out the side for us to win the game. And I remember just when we won, our team went crazy. You know, like we threw our gloves up in the air and we were all running and hugging each other. And it was this moment of celebration. But let, let me be honest with you. Do you know what was going through my mind as an 11-year-old in that moment? Here's what I was thinking. Is this all there is? Like you win? And this is it? You know? I, I was literally thinking that. Like, oh, I thought like once you win, it was going to feel better for longer. You know? It turns out that winning is basically only good because you don't have to lose. That's kind of what I learned. Because losing is really, really no good. But winning almost doesn't outweigh the losing. And... And life is like that. There are just so many moments. Like, like uh, one of the most important things in a marriage, for instance, right? If your marriage is going to work, you got to learn to manage your expectations of your spouse, you know? You don't just have to learn to manage your expectations of your bunnies. you got to learn to manage your expectations of your spouse, right? Because if you are always placing on that person an importance of fulfilling your expectations, how is that going to work out for you? It's kind of one of those things you got to learn in marriage, right? Like we have to learn what is realistic to expect from another human being who's maybe given it the best that they can. And, and so much of life is like that. And, you know, this moment when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, you want to talk about expectations, right? Like this is one of those moments where what could have happened is astounding. This is a moment, really, in reality, that could have been so much more, right? Like, this is God in the flesh entering into his city. This is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords finally coming into the city, which has been set aside as God's dwelling place on the earth. It's where the temple is. It's where the Holy of Holies is. It's where the Ark of the Covenant is. And here is the person in the flesh who represents literally what all those Old Testament symbols were all about. And he's coming into Jerusalem. This could have been such a profound history-changing moment right? And, and in, in some ways it was, but yet it's a moment that is filled with sadness because no one seems to grasp who it really is that has entered into their midst. The, the most powerful people in Israel, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, whose responsibility it is to teach the people of God what it is to know God and to follow him, have no idea that God himself has come into their midst. That's what's going on in this moment. There are some disciples who recognize at least something about, wow, this is a special moment. We've got to praise and celebrate. And yet, shouldn't the city of Jerusalem be there to celebrate? Shouldn't every person, every man, woman, and child in that city be there to celebrate? Don't you think that's what should be happening? I mean, imagine if the people of Jerusalem in this moment had realized who was coming in to their midst. And yet, in spite of that tension between what, is, what could be versus what is happening, Jesus is very purposeful about what it is he's doing. He knows exactly what it is he's doing. You know, uh, 
several years ago, I had my daughter, who's 13 now, Sydney, uh, record something from a, a, a song that I had fallen in love with when I was a kid. And it's, the song is about how a king should come into a city. And um, it's pointing out the difference between the way a king should come and the way Jesus chose to come both in terms of his birth and then the way he chooses to enter into Jerusalem. And so this is Sydney when she was four or five, I can't remember, um, speaking the words of this, this song. It's really like a poem. And so I, I've got this for you guys to listen to today. Here's, here's my daughter, Sydney, uh, many years ago. How should a king come? Even a child knows the answer, of course. In a coach of gold with a pure white horse. In the beautiful city. In the prime of the day. And the trumpet should cry. And the crowds make way. And the flags fly high. In the morning sun. And the people all cheer for the sovereign one. And everyone knows that's the way that it's done. That's the way that a king should come. How should a king come? Even a commoner understands. He should come for his treasures and his houses and lands. He should dine upon summer strawberries and milk and sleep upon bedclothes of satin and silk. It's high on a hill, his castle should glow with the lights of the city like jewels below. And everyone knows that's the way that it's done. That's the way that a king should come. I love those words. And, and you know, Every civilization throughout history, that's the way they've celebrated their king coming home to his city, right? I mean, the king is here. And you throw out, you know, the red carpet. You, you, you do all that you can to celebrate all that the king represents when he enters into a city. I think that's really part of the reason why Palm Sunday is what it is, is Jesus, in coming to his city, chose to come in in a much different way. He chose to come in on the back of the colt of a donkey with the cloaks of some disciples of his thrown over the back of, of the, this colt of a donkey. The question is, why did Jesus choose this means of entering into the city when everyone knows that the king should come in a much different way? And here's, here's the reason why. From his from his birth to this moment of entering into his city, everything about what Jesus did is to defy and stand against the culture of this world. He is representing a heavenly kingdom. He is representing a kingdom that is not of this world. And his kingship, his rule, is something that goes against all the hunger for power and glory and conquest that marks what it is to be a king in our world. And so Jesus came into his city to demonstrate something very different, to demonstrate what it is to be a lowly and humble king who comes to sacrifice his life for the many. 
That's what's so powerful about this Palm Sunday moment, is Jesus does not come to the city of Jerusalem to take over. He comes to the city of Jerusalem to die. And the way he comes into the city represents his, his humble attitude of coming as a king to sacrifice his whole self for his people, to offer everything he has to bring transformation and new life to them and to us. It's a powerful symbol of what the kingdom of God is all about. And I guess we have to ask ourselves, if, if it's true for Jesus, what is he looking for in us? Right? What, what are his expectations about how you and I should go about our lives? If this is how he chooses to come in to his city. Now, I want to close with the words that Jesus says when he's commenting on kind of the, the sadness and the sorrow that surround this moment of, of his entry into the city. And it's, it's starting in verse 41 of, of, of Luke 19. Here's what he says. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because, and this is, this is a tragic phrase that Jesus says right here, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. I mean, there's nothing more sad than the very people of God not recognizing when God has come to them. It's a, it's a, it's a moment that goes down uh, in, in sorrow in history, right? And I, and I love how Jesus describes this. He's literally weeping here over what could have been. Now listen, is what happens necessary? Yes. Does Jesus have to go to the cross? Yes. Does Jesus have to give his life? Yes, 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 yes. But does that stop Jesus from recognizing what could have been? No. I love that. It gives me this sense about our lives, right? That like, that there's always things that are possible in every moment. Uh, it's kind of like, uh, it's one of those things about what it is to be a Wesleyan and, and a free Methodist that I love. Because, you know, we, we have this understanding that God's will will be done, right? Like, nobody's going to stand in God's way. You're not going to stop God from doing what it is he wants to do in the world. You're not going to stop God from doing what he wants to do in history. You weren't going to stop God from, you know, transforming uh, and, and doing away with sin and death once and for all. That was going to happen. God's going to do that, right? But... It's almost as if Jesus is saying, hey, Jerusalem, if you have, had been aware of who it was that was coming into your midst, this whole thing could have gone down very, very differently. And ultimately, it's not about the difference that it would have made for Jesus. It's about the difference it would have made for the people of Jerusalem, right? If they had embraced what was happening in that moment— if they, as the people of God, had had an ability to understand what it was that God was doing, 
how different might things have been? It's one of the things that I think is, is, is so uh, sobering as the people of God. I mean, one of the themes of this book is people who should know better having no idea what it is that God is doing. It's one of the themes of scripture, right? And I think sometimes as God's people, it needs to hit us like a ton of bricks. Like, you know, it's not a given that the people of God always know what it is that God is doing. That's kind of shocking, isn't it? Like it's not, what God is at work doing in the world is sometimes so so mysterious and so astounding and so different than what it is we're able to understand that we could literally miss it. I think that's true like for uh, for us uh, communally as as a people as a we like like there are times in this in the in this world where the church the people of God as a whole can miss the things that God is doing you know like if you if you think back to the history of this country for instance right and think back to some of the ways that um people of different ethnicities and races have been treated, not just by the country as a whole, but even by the people of God who ought to know better. And you would understand exactly what I mean, right? And if you in your life have ever experienced um, uh, being treated as less than because of some part of yourself that you cannot control, then you know exactly what it is I'm talking about. And unfortunately, it seems to be true over and over again that many of the people of God who ought to know better do not seem to understand what should be done in that moment. It seems to be one of those tensions that exists about being the people of God, right? And, and I'm not saying this to, to make us feel like all is lost or to feel ashamed or to feel, um, you know, disgraced or, or to, to, to shed any, any, uh, any doubt on how important it is that we are marked and set apart as the people of God. I'm saying this so that we understand the importance of doing everything that we can to tune our ears into the voice of God to know exactly what it is that he's doing. Because that's what we're called to do. And it is possible, as Jesus himself demonstrates in this moment, that we could miss out on what it is that God wants to do. This is true for us as a people. This is also true for each of us in our own lives. I think maybe it's a little bit easier easier to understand in our own lives. Have you ever felt like you were in a season of your life where you were kind of, you had kind of veered off from the course that God had for you? Have you ever felt that in your life? Um, it's, It's happened to many of us, right? I mean, specifically before we had given our lives to him, we were probably way off the course, right? And, and then we met him and we understood what he wanted to do for us and he's able to get our lives back on track. But even once we've given our lives to him, it is so easy, isn't it, to get in moments where we find ourselves kind of off of the course of what he has for us. I, you know, I was talking earlier about expectation management. I've, I've found like one of the, one of the real um, keys to like spiritual maturity, to, to walking with God, and to knowing him and to experiencing the life that he has for us is being able to determine in the day-to-day moments of our lives what it is that God is doing and to align ourselves with that. 
You know, if you've ever experienced disappointments or challenges in your life, then you know what I'm talking about, right? When door after door after door closes on you, does it feel like God is at work doing something in you and through you and for you? And if your life is anything like mine, like, it seems like doors pretty much close more frequently than they open. Have you experienced that? Like, there's more closed doors than there are open doors. And, and I think sometimes there's this teaching that goes around as if only the open doors are from God. And that's not spiritual maturity. If you just live your life looking for open doors as a sign of God working in you and through you, um, you will very often feel like you're alone and he's not with you. But if you learn to see even the closed doors as a reflection of what God is doing in the moment, then you have an opportunity to be in tune with him and what he's doing. Here's an example of this. I, th- I don't know if you guys have all heard the news, but uh, my family and I are moving to Tennessee in a few months. And uh, we, we had this sense that God was, that this was the next step for our family, that we were going to be moving uh, to Tennessee. And the, the thing about Tennessee right now is the real estate market is going crazy. It's like the, the number three real estate market in the country right now. And what that means is like if you go to rent a house or if you go to buy a house, there is a lot of competition for every house. There are way more people that want houses than there are houses available, which is really good if you're a seller or a, a landlord, but is really uncomfortable if you're a buyer or somebody trying to rent. We thought initially our plan was we'll go to Tennessee and we'll rent a house. But what we were finding is there are no houses to rent in Tennessee. And so we kind of shifted gears and we thought, well, okay, um, literally this hit my wife and I in the same moment. Oh, maybe we should try to buy a house, you know? So we we went through the process of uh, getting approved for a loan and all these different things. And and then we started to look for houses that we could buy. And here's what would happen. Like we'd find a house and um, our agent would go and talk to their agent and they'd say something like, well, you're going to need to make a really amazing offer because we already have five offers on this house, you know, and you have until this date to make the offer. And this is how, and then, and then we can't really give you any feedback on your offer. You know, they can't give you any range on like what people are offering for the house. You just like, here's the asking price. And you just got to go with what you think the best offer is. So our conversations with our agents would be something like, well, do you think this would be enough? And they would, they would never say, yes, that'll be enough. Or no, that won't be enough. They just go, well, we just think you should make the very best offer that you can, you know, which is kind of like code for you better put in more money. Is that is how I understood them to be saying this. And so we, for two houses, two houses in a row, we made the very best offer that we could. And we loved these houses. You know, we fell in love with these houses. We were planning, you know, what was going to go where and, you know, what, what changes we were going to make and all these things. And then on both of those houses, boom, the door closed in our face, you know? And honestly, I don't know if you've ever had that experience. Probably you have, but um, a younger me, I think, would have perceived that moment as kind of like, um, God, are you trying to tell us not to move to Tennessee? You know, like, are you trying to tell us that we've done the wrong thing? Because that experience of having your offer rejected on a house you love is very, very painful to experience. You know, it's, it's like, uh, everything comes to a stop. But, um, I'm, I'm proud of the way, not just myself, but my family 
was responding to this in this moment, we just had this sense that like, if God closes the door on these houses, he must have something much better for us in mind. And sure enough, he did. Like the, the house we ended up getting was actually in our price range. Praise God for that. You know, when you start looking to buy houses, pretty soon you can be like, budget? Ah, we can afford this much, you know? So this one, it literally was in our price range. And I praise God for that. He knew better than we did about certain things. But, but here's the point, right? In our lives, there are things that God is aware of that we are not aware of. There are things that God is doing that we do not recognize. In this moment, on Palm Sunday, God was orchestrating a global transformation. His people were not aware of it, right? They did not understand what was happening. It's the same thing in our lives. God is at work doing something right now in your life. And he wants to use not just the open doors, but closed doors to communicate to you what it is he's doing. The question is, just like it was in this moment when Jesus came into Jerusalem is, are you listening? Will you listen? Are you tuning your ear into God's voice? Are you, in the midst of all the distractions and all that's going on, are you saying, God, what it is it that you're trying to do in me right now, in this moment? When we learn to embrace that, when we learn to, to kind of to tune our, our ears into the incredible things that God is doing that, that, that fly against what's happening around us, like the, the kingdom things that he's doing, uh, it has the potential to unlock in us something that nothing else can touch. And it's true of each of us, but it's also true of the church as a whole. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I think God's at work doing something. Don't you sense it? Like, has this COVID year not been the weirdest year of all time? I mean, I, some of you have been around a lot longer than me, and you've experienced a lot more weird things than me. But let me just say, for me, this was the weirdest year I've ever experienced, you know? And, and my thought is, God's got to be doing something. I don't know exactly what it is yet. But, but I think what he's trying to say to us is his church is, tune your ears into me. Pay attention to what I'm doing. Jesus says um, a few days after his entry into Jerusalem, behold, I am making all things new. I feel like that's kind of what he's always doing. You know, ultimately that's what Easter is all about. And that's what we celebrate next week. But my sense is right now in 2021, in this world that has had the strangest year of all time, Jesus is making all things new. And that's what this is about. The question is, do we as his people find a way to align ourselves with that in a way that maybe the, the people on this day a few thousand years ago missed out on? There's something available to us in a fresh way this morning. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we want nothing more as your people than to be exactly where you want us to be. You're the most important priority that there is. You uh, outweigh everything else. And we want to learn. We want to cultivate that ability to tune our ear into your voice. May your voice be the loudest thing in our ear, God. May what you're doing supersede for us everything else that's going on around us. May we in our, in our individual lives and in our 
lives together as your people um, march in step with the beat that you set, God. We don't want to be like these people thousands of years ago who did not even recognize who had come into the city. We don't want to be people that miss out on what it is that you're doing. We know, God, that you're at work in a fresh way, in a new way right now. Like this, this craziness of this season and all that has happened is you stirring up something new in your church and we want to be a part of it. I pray for my friends here at Mission Valley, God, just a season of new life and new blessing and new things as you move in powerful ways in the days ahead. I think you've kind of refocused us as your church for what it means to be your church in this time. And I pray that you would just um, accomplish incredible things in this amazing church in the days ahead, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.